people said. And all God's people said. We have been on this trip through the New Testament for the first 90 days of the year. We are continuing that journey and that trip, although we are coming to the end of it. It's, 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 that, it's that time where you feel like you, you've, you're on a trip, right, and you've gone as far as you're going to go from home, and you're on your, on your way home. We're, we're on our way home as we, as we journey through the New Testament. But today we're going to be in 2 Corinthians. We're going to be in 2 Corinthians chapter 5. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, we're going to be starting with verse 16. Um, I'd encourage you to turn with me in your Bibles if you have one with you. If you don't, grab one of those black hardback pew Bibles in front of you there. We're on page 1025 in the pew Bibles. And if you don't have a copy of Scripture to to take home to call your very own, grab one of those and take it with you. Um, Let that be our gift to you this morning. 2 Corinthians or as the Brits might say it, 2 Corinthians. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, starting from verse 16. From now on, then, we do not know anyone from a worldly perspective. Even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, yet now we no longer know him in that, this way. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation, The old has passed away, and see, the new has come. Everything is from God, who has reconciled us to himself through Christ and has given us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and he has committed the message of reconciliation to us. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. Since God is making his appeal through us, we plead on Christ's behalf. Be reconciled to God. He made the one who did not know sin to be sin for us, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Working together with him, we also appeal to you. Don't receive the grace of God in vain. For he says, at an acceptable time I listened to you, And in the day of salvation, I helped you. See, now is the acceptable time. Now, today, is the day of salvation. This is the Word of God. Read it, believe it, and live it. Let's pray. Dear merciful God, you delight not in pomp or show, but in a humble and contrite heart. You you overturn our love for worldly possessions. You overturn our previous lives. You, You make us new. And in the process, you fix our hearts firmly on you. Having us know that in having nothing, we possess everything. That if we have you, that if we know you, we have a treasure of incalculable value stored for us in heaven. Amen. Since I didn't have you stand while we're reading Scripture, you're going to have to stand through the whole sermon. 
I'm going to blame the time change and trying to get a toddler and a newborn through the time change for any mistakes I make this morning. If I say the name Copernicus, do you know who I'm talking about? Copernicus was an astronomer. And Copernicus was one of the first who looked at the sky at night and using math and the power of observation deduced that the earth was not the center of the universe. Now Copernicus was was partially right and partially wrong. He was partially right because the earth is not the center of the universe. He was partially wrong because he thought the sun was the center of the universe. And what we know now, of course, the sun is not the center of the universe, but it is the center of our solar system. And the Copernicus was right. Those celestial bodies closest to us, including the one on which we are standing or sitting and that it's hurtling through space, revolve around the sun. This brought about what's called the Copernican Revolution. It was such a a radical reorientation on what reality was that it was it was a revolution in thought. It it was a radical reorientation. It changed everything. When we come to know Christ, we we need a revolution. We need a radical reorientation in how we think about Christ. Paul, who's writing this letter to the church in Corinth, Paul experienced that. You you remember the story. I I think Dave touched on it just a couple of weeks ago. Um, Three, to be exact. I know it was three because he's three weeks and ten, ten minutes old. But they've touched on that story of of Paul and how Paul is is on the road to Damascus. He thinks he knows and understands Jesus and who Jesus is. And because of what he thinks he knows about Jesus, Paul is on the way to Damascus to persecute the church there. And on the road to Damascus, what's happened? In no... No... uh, Paul gets knocked on his butt. Literally. Literally. Paul gets knocked off his horse onto his rear end. The risen, resurrected, ascended Lord comes to, comes to Paul in person. And it changes everything. Paul is physically blinded by the encounter. To, to, to show the reality that, that he had been blind to who Christ was. And then could see. And, and I have to wonder, when, when Paul writes to the church in Corinth, and when he talks about being made a new creature, we have to know that Paul is remembering that afternoon on a road to Damascus. Paul's having to remember how he was received, the coldness with which he was received by the church after being made new in Christ. And the truth of the matter is, can we blame the church 
for being cold to the man that they knew as Saul when he shows up and begins to tell them of this radical revolution that he has had in his life. But as he's, as he's writing to the church in Corinth, he uses this phrase there in, in, in verse 16. He says, we don't know anyone from a worldly perspective. And even if we have known Christ from a worldly perspective, now we no longer know him this way. And we have to ask ourselves, what does what's Paul mean when he talks about knowing Christ from a worldly perspective? Well, what was the perspective of Paul? Right? I mean, that was a, that was a worldly perspective. He, he, he knew Jesus as, as a person. There was... There was no question in the time of Paul as to whether or not Jesus had been a real person walking around. He, he knew him as a, as a person. He knew him as a man from Galilee, from Nazareth. He knew him as, 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 as a teacher, as somebody who had, who had taught things. He knew him as a troublemaker, as a rabble-rouser, as the as the father and progenitor of a movement that, that had the potential and the power to overturn everything that Paul knew and everything that Paul held dear. And if we, we think about this, we think and we know and we understand that many people today know Jesus from a worldly perspective. There are no serious scholars. None who are going to deny the historical veracity of the fact that there was a man in the first century named Jesus. Even Bart Ehrman, who teaches at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. Even, even Dr. Ehrman, who is, who, is an, who is an agnostic atheist, does not deny the, the historical fact of Jesus. And in fact, Dr. Ehrman points out that anyone who denies the historical fact of Jesus basically doesn't know what they're talking about. Are there some dark corners of the internet called Reddit in which atheists hang out and, and say, well, Jesus didn't really exist? Of course there are. But, but scholars, people who've actually studied the question, whether they are believers or not, do not deny the historical fact of Jesus. They know that Jesus was a man. If you go out and you ask most people what they know about Jesus, they're going to tell you that he was a man, that he was a teacher, that he taught good things. There was a book a number of years ago that was published. They like Jesus, but not the church. The way most people know Jesus, they like him. He taught us to love each other, and he taught us to be kind to one another, and he taught all of these wonderful things. And, and I, let's be very clear. We know that he did that, right? The problem comes, the disconnect comes, when we ask people to transcend this worldly knowledge of Jesus and to know him as Savior and as Lord. That's the, that's the disconnect. Most people, most people, are willing to at least give lip service to a worldly Jesus. If you were to, to travel around our local area, and I know this because I've seen the studies and the statistics that have been done. If you were to travel around, most people that you are going to run into, if you just stopped a random person in Food Lion 
or Farm Fresh on Saturday morning and said, all right, I'm just, I'm just out in the community. I'm asking a question. Who's Jesus? Most of them are going to say, well, Jesus is the Son of God. Well, what did Jesus teach? And they're going to give you a, a summary, be able to give you a summary of Jesus' teachings. They might even say, Jesus came so that our sins can be forgiven. But brothers and sisters, here's the other statistic that we know. We know that the overwhelming majority of people who live around us would be able to give those words with their mouth. But we also know that 69% of the people who live around us do not have a relationship with Jesus. They know Jesus from a worldly perspective. They know who Jesus is. They can say all of the right things about Jesus, but they do not know him. Some of you are, are big sports fans, right? Some of, you, some of you could probably give me reams of statistics about your favorite ball player or golfer or race car driver, right? I've got a friend. I've known Chris basically my whole life. We've always said that Chris needed to be on, on, on sports talk radio because the kid is a walk kid. He's my age. We're not kids anymore, Carter. <clears throat> this middle-aged man is a walking encyclopedia of sports knowledge. I mean, he can tell you who hit a home run on April the 2nd, 1972 in which ballpark. I'm serious. Like, it's, it's nuts what he can do in his brain, the stuff that he's got up there. And, 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 and if he were here, he's a huge Braves fan like I am. And so I'm going to use a, an example of, a, of, a, of, a, of a, a former Brave who has since gone on to not quite so greener pastures, uh, Freddie Freeman. Chris could be able to stand here today and tell you every drop of information there is to know statistically about Freddie Freeman. But does Chris know Freddie Freeman? No. My, my, favorite, my favorite brave or certainly my favorite member of the pitching staff is Max Freed. I've got a signed picture of Max Freed in my office. I love Max. I don't carry statistics around in my head because my brain's not made that way. But, man, I love Max. I can tell you, I, I can watch him pitch, and it's wonderful. I know a lot about him. I know that at one time, he played with a former member of this congregation or current member of this congregation in minor league ball. But unlike Michael Bass, I don't know Max Freed. We can, we can give all of these, these words with our mouth about Jesus, but that doesn't mean that we know him. And this shouldn't surprise us. Scripture t shows us this over and over and over again. In James, James writes that, that, that even the demons believe. The demons believe. In, in, the, in the first chapter of Mark, there's an incident where Jesus comes up and, and, and comes up on a demoniac, a man possessed by demons, and the demons cry out to Jesus. I actually want to turn there because I want, you, I want to read what they say to Jesus. 
Just then a man with unclean spirit was in their synagogue. He cried out, What do you have to do with us, Jesus of Nazareth? Have you come to destroy us? I know who you are, the Holy One of God. The demon knows who Christ is. He's able to speak. I know who you are, the Holy One of God. In Philippians, in the church, writing to the church in Philippi, uh, Paul tells us, we know this, right? That God gave, name, gave Jesus the name to be lifted above every other name, and that at the, at the sound of that name, what will happen? Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. And when he says every, he means every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. But it does not mean that people know Jesus. And then, of course, finally, in Matthew chapter 7, in Jesus' own words in the Sermon on the Mount, he's, he's talking about it, and he says, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father. And on that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, didn't we prophesy in your name, drive out demons in your name, didn't we do many miracles in your name? And he will announce to them, I never knew you. So here you have people who not only know the name of Jesus and can say the name of Jesus and can say, Lord, Lord, they actually have done stuff in his name, and yet they do not know him. They haven't had a revolution in their understanding and in their heart. In Romans 10, Paul shows us what this revolution is like. He tells us that, yes, we have to confess with our mouth, but we also have to what? Believe with our heart. See, when we confess with our mouth, it's a, it's a head thing. It's a, it's, a, it's a brain thing. And brothers and sisters, it terrifies me to think how many people are walking through life with the head knowledge down. They know that Jesus is the Son of God. They know that he was a, the, third, the second person of the Trinity. They, know, they, can, they can confess all of those things with their mouth but they don't believe in their heart. God has not transformed and changed and altered their heart. There's a, a wonderful, well, the, the whole sermon is great, but the, the particular clip is great. If you follow me on, on Facebook, I'm sure you've seen me post it. It's from Alistair Beg is a, a pastor in the Cleveland area. He's from Scotland originally, and, and he, he's talking about the thief on the cross. And he says, What happens when the thief on the cross goes to heaven? And 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 you know, and they ask him all these questions. Do you know all of this stuff? And he says, No. And finally he's asked, Well, well, well why are you here? On what authority do you think that you get to be here? And the thief responds, the man on the middle cross said I could come. The thief on the cross knew Jesus. We witness his conversion in the story. It starts with both of them cursing Jesus. They, they know Jesus is real, 
He's hung on the cross between them. They probably know who he is, know his teachings, knows where he's from. I mean, he's a, a pretty important guy at the time. And yet, they know him with their mouth and with their head. They know who he is. They know facts about him, but they, they don't know him. They have no relationship with him. And, and we see this relationship, this nascent relationship born between two men on a cross. And so the time comes and the, the thief stands before the gates and gets to say, the man on the middle cross said, I could come. I, 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 as I said, I, I am concerned about the number of people who have Jesus here and don't have him in their heart. You, I'm sure you've heard this before. This is an old, old preacher axiom. If you've heard it a million times, you're going to hear it a billion and one times. Okay? Because I'm going to do it. The average distance between the human brain and the human heart is, tw- is a foot. It's 12 inches. And there are going to be an awful lot of people who miss heaven by 12 inches. Because they got it here, but they don't have it here. It's in their brain. They've got the facts. They can say it all, but not their charts. So how do we no longer know Christ from a worldly perspective? What do we do? Well, first of all, we don't do anything. God does. We don't do anything. God does. But, but what it looks like is this. It looks like being changed by Christ. It looks like having a revolution in your heart. A, a, a radical reordering, just like Copernicus. In which you no longer think that you are the center of the universe. But in which Jesus Christ becomes your Lord, your master, and he becomes the center of your life. It comes from being made a new creation. In John 3, John uses the language, quoting Jesus, John uses the language of being what? Born again. I fear that phrase has fallen out of favor in the church. We don't talk about being born again a lot. We talk about getting saved. We talk about renewal. We talk about all these other sorts of things, but but those two words, maybe, maybe in, the, in the 70s when President Carter was quoted in that magazine about being born again, maybe it became trite and uncool to talk about being born again. But it's Scripture to be born again. And here, writing into the church in Corinth, this is what Paul says Jesus' mission was. Jesus' mission wasn't to come and and say a bunch of good stuff and inspire a movement, although he did that. The movement we call the church. No, what Jesus came to do, Paul tells us, is he came to reconcile the world to God. He came to make all things new, including us. to reconcile the world to God, to to, to take a world that was far from him, lost in their sin, lost in their brokenness, lost in their pain and their suffering, separated from God, 
and to reconcile in their sin. To reconcile him. And how does he do it? Paul tells us, how does Jesus do it? Jesus does it by becoming sin on our behalf. By going to the cross and taking on all of our sin for us so that we can be reconciled to God. And then Paul, but Paul goes a step further. He says, okay, now when you know God this way, when you no longer know him in a worldly way, when you've been made new, when you've been reconciled, guess what? Now you're an ambassador. What's an ambassador? I mean, these days it's whoever's contributed the largest sum to whoever the president is, right? I mean, I mean, you know, if you're an Irish American and you really want to be made ambassador to Ireland, you better be rich and give a lot of money to whoever becomes president. That's the fastest way to get to be president, uh, ambassador to Ireland. Unfortunately, I'll never get there. But what an ambassador does is an ambassador speaks on behalf of the sovereign whom he is representing. So, so in Jesus' time, right, I mean, let's just be honest, there aren't any democratic republics that elect presidents through electoral colleges and have broken down legislatures. But there were kings and Caesars and emperors. There, that's where the sovereignty lay. And so when the ambassador goes, the ambassador speaks on behalf of the sovereign that he is representing. When John Adams was appointed ambassador to the court of St. James, John Adams, middle class, Massachusetts lawyer farmer, had to present himself to George III. The whole story about that. Now, he wasn't really happy about it. Today, if I were to be named ambassador to the United Kingdom, I would not go and present myself to whichever member of the Conservative Party is Prime Minister this week or today, the way they've been rotating. But I would present myself to Charles III. And I might remind him what happened to Charles I and the second, but... We're an ambassador. We're to plead on Christ's behalf to the people that we know to be reconciled to God. Last week we looked at Romans 9, remember? And Paul talks about his great sorrow and his unceasing anguish. And out of that sorrow and anguish for the people we know in our lives who don't know Christ, we are to plead on his behalf with them to be reconciled to God through Christ. And Paul concludes with, this, with that statement. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the time. So my final words to you today are this. Don't put it off. Don't put off your own salvation. If you have been wrestling with your own salvation for, for a period of time, don't, don't put it off. Don't assume that you're going to get an opportunity to have a deathbed conversion. Now, I'm not saying take it lightly. I'm not saying to, to not do it seriously. 
but don't put it off. But for those of us who have already not put off our salvation, I would offer this. Don't put off being an ambassador. Because now, today is the day of salvation. Both for us, but for those around us. Plead his case to the people that you know. Speak on his behalf. Offer up your broken heart and express the need to the people you know for their heart to be broken for him. That he doesn't need perfection. He knows he can't get it. He doesn't need sacrifice and burnt offerings and incense and silver and gold. He's, he's the creator of the universe. It's all his anyway. What he needs, what he desires above all else, is a broken heart, a repentant heart, a heart that's been made new by him, for him, so he can be reconciled to his child. Don't put it off. Because today, now, this moment, is the day of salvation. In a couple of weeks, Easter will be here. It's hard for me to believe that Easter will be here. Easter is a wonderful time to plead the case. Easter is a wonderful time to invite someone to come with you to church. Easter is a wonderful time to to be an ambassador and to give the good news of great love that God the Father sent God the Son to live for us, to live a sinless life, to to die a sacrificial death on a cross in which he took on our sin, to be buried in a borrowed tomb, to be resurrected in new life, through which and by which he clothes us in his righteousness. Greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Christ laid his life down for you. And because of that, God, the Holy Spirit, can be with you today, tomorrow, and forever. Don't put it off. It is good news. It is joyous news. So be thinking about Easter and pleading the case and bringing people before the throne. If today you wish to respond, if you wish to unite with this church in fellowship, if you wish to make a public profession of faith, if today is the day of your salvation, if today is the day of your dedication, if today is the day where you simply wish to come to this altar and pray, today is the day. Don't put it off. Our hymn of invitation is going to be hymn 280.